And now hear God's holy word from Luke chapter 12, picking up where we left off last week in our study of Luke's gospel. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning and yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask you today for your Holy Spirit. Fill us so that we may hear and receive, and learn, and grow, and be sanctified. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, that I might articulate these things clearly, and deliver us all from error, deliver us from distraction, so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock, and our nearest kinsman. Amen. One of my favorite episodes, if not the favorite episode of the Andy Griffith show is when Aunt B is fussing at Andy and Opie about being slobs. They're making messes around the house. And then she gets a call to go visit a sick relative in Mount Pilot. She doesn't want to go because she doesn't think Andy and Opie can take care of themselves. But they convince her, yeah, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Go, go Aunt B, go, go visit your, your relative. So she consents to leave, and of course, as she's gone over the next couple of days, time passes, and in fact, they are slobs. They mess up the house, and and everything's in disarray. When they get an unexpected call that Aunt B is coming home today, meet her at the bus station. She's getting a bus uh, from Mount Pilot. She'll be back in Mayberry today. So uh, Andy and Opie scramble around the house. They try to get everything clean, and then it it dawns on them. They realize, wait a minute. If we have everything clean and orderly and tidy, and we look like we got along just fine without Aunt B, maybe she'll think we don't need her. So then they go back and they start messing everything up again. And they they tear the house apart. And and when they're going out the door to to go to the bus stop to pick her up, of course, nosy neighbor Clara, Uh, sees through the window uh, that the house is a wreck. And she obviously thinks, you know, uh, B can't come home to this mess. And so Clara re-cleans the house that Andy and Opie just just cleaned up. And of course, when they bring uh, Aunt B home, there are a couple of more funny reversals. But the the humor in that is this, this, um, what, what, what makes this a great episode. At the heart of this episode is the expression of the desire to be ready for a loved one when they come back, to have everything in order and to make them feel welcomed and loved. And what Andy and Opie were confused about is what would make her feel most loved, a messy house or a perfectly clean house? Where, how can we love her? Opie and Andy and, and Clara are confused about, about what that's supposed to look like. 
But we've all experienced the same frantic, hurried need to get everything ready, to get everything just right, because someone is coming over or someone is coming home. Are they here yet? Oh no, they might be early. Hurry up, get it done. So that when they get here, it looks like everything has been in order for a very long time. I don't know about you, when I'm, when I'm scrambling around for company and I'm trying to help my wife get everything in order, about five minutes before the company arrives, I uh, put on a clean shirt, you know, you light some candles, turn on some music, get a pipe and a book, and you look like we've just been enjoying this museum quality house all day. We, we've, we've not been in a hurry at all. Oh, so nice of you to drop by. You know, we, we want it to look right. We haven't been running around like crazy. Obviously not. Um, Jesus draws on this timeless human experience in the section of Luke's gospel with this parable about servants who are waiting for their master to return. Jesus is talking about this here in this section of Luke's gospel because he's still in that section on instruction for his disciples on how they're going to deal with the increasing opposition and resistance that they get as they get closer to Jerusalem. We've been in the church here, we've been marching toward uh, the cross and toward Good Friday and toward resurrection on the other side of that with our celebration of Easter. And, and Jesus is on this march toward Jerusalem. And when they get there, the persecution is going to increase. And the question is going to come up repeatedly, Lord, when are you going to sort all of this out? When are you going to judge the world for its wickedness and unbelief? When do you put the mighty down from their thrones and exalt those of low degree? When do you work out our deliverance? Because things are looking worse and worse and worse the deeper we get into this. The, the, the disciples are waiting for something, some great deliverance, though they can't quite articulate what it looks like. They don't know, obviously, when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen, but they're looking for this great blessing and this great deliverance. And so now Jesus is instructing them here on how to wait for the answer to those questions. How do you wait for the Son of Man to do what he says he's going to do? So Jesus tells them the story, that they're to wait like servants who are anticipating the return of their master. Servants whose job it is to keep the household running well in the absence of the master. Whose job it is to wait for the return of the master, to tend to his needs and serve him on his arrival, no matter when he comes back, no matter how late in the night he returns. The servants in the story that Jesus tells know for certain that the master is coming back. What they don't know is when he is returning to set things right in, in, in the story. So, so this extended time of waiting is not to be used as an opportunity for idleness or laziness or folly or cruelty to others. And this is going to come out later in the story, but this is a time to be diligent. It's, it's a time to have this persevering, tenacious attention to the needs of the house and to the commands of the coming master and his expectations. The beginning of the story here, when Jesus tells it, it should remind you of the Exodus. Verse 35, Jesus says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Jesus deliberately points back to the Passover and the alertness and the readiness with which the children of Israel 
awaited their mighty deliverance in Egypt. Remember when uh, the, the Lord instructed them how to wait for uh, the, uh, the result of that last, that last plague. They were to eat their Passover meal with their loins girded. What does that mean? We read that phrase in the Bible. That means uh, ordinarily you'd wear your robes in a, in a kind of long uh, flowing fashion down to the ground. And you, if you were staying around or eating or visiting or whatever, but if you were working, you had to tie the, the hem of your robe up. You had to belt it. You had to get it up out of the way so you could run, so you could work, so your legs could move freely. And so they were to eat the Passover meal with their belts girded, with their, with their robes girded, so that they could move quickly and get out of Egypt without hesitation. You also remember the Passover meal was supposed to be eaten without any leaven. You know, leaven was this uh, way of getting bread to rise, uh, taking a bit of a starter and adding that, and, and uh, adding that to the lump and, and allowing the bread to rise. And the Passover meal, the Lord says, you're not going to use any leaven. You're going to leave your old bread behind. You're going to leave your old starter, your old leaven behind in Egypt because I'm going to give you new bread in the, in the, in the wilderness. I'm going to give you new bread when we get out uh, of Egypt. So leave that behind. Now, what's interesting about that, remember last week, Jesus told them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leave that behind. Leave that in the old world, the behavior and the attitudes and, and the perspectives of the Pharisees and the 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 tyranny of the Pharisees. Leave all that back in the old world. So what Jesus is is drawing on is that Exodus imagery where he says, have your traveling clothes on and keep your lamp burning. Don't let the fire go out so that when I call you, you're ready for me. You aren't fumbling around in darkness. You're You're not trying to find a light. You're not sitting in darkness. You are a light to those who are sitting in darkness. You are able to hold up your lamp and, and lead the way. So we have all this kind of this exodus, readiness, preparedness, Passover uh, imagery right at the very beginning of the story. But then Jesus uh, tells a story where the people at the center of the story and the people who are prepared aren't getting ready to go on a trip. They're servants who have gotten the house ready to receive their master who has gone on a trip. They're ready to receive him so that when he knocks on the door, They're ready to open the door, receive him, and take care of whatever he needs to be done. So that when the master comes, he's not going to have to beat on the door and wake everybody up. He's not going to have to stand outside in the cold night wondering where everybody is and whether there's anyone to put up the horse or or take care of uh, the needs that, that he has in putting everything together for the night. When he arrives, the household is on point to greet him. And immediately, when the master arrives, everyone springs to action. In the, in the story that Jesus gives, the master has gone to a wedding. And like most great parties, you can't tell when you're going to be back. Boy, I don't know. If it's a great party, it may, be, it may be really late. If we're really having a big celebration, it may be two in the morning when I, when I get back. His return, Jesus says, might be delayed until the second watch or the third watch of the night. It may be after midnight. It may be two in the morning. It doesn't matter. That's the master's prerogative to come back when he pleases. And whenever he comes back to have a house ready to receive him, not a house running around like Andy and Opie trying to figure out, are we supposed to be messy or clean? Or what are we supposed to be doing? But a house with a clear understanding of the expectations of the master. Now, now that may seem kind of 
um, arrogant and rude for the master to keep his house waiting up all night, all hours of the night until he kind of strolls in and expects everybody to be ready for him. But uh, look at this funny reversal that happens in verse 37. There's this funny thing. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. So this master is coming from a wedding feast and it looks like he's got to-go boxes. It looks like he's got to-go bags. It looks like he's got big trays from the caterer. He's come from the feast with good things to share so the master girds his waist, so he looks just like the servants with their waists girded. And he has the servants sit down and the master waits on them. The master serves them, feeds them. The master becomes the servant. And the master is not above doing this. This is not demoralizing. This is not a, 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 a mockery for the, for the master to do this. This is what he loves doing. This is who he is. This is his identity. He loves to serve. And all great masters and all great fathers and all great leaders uh, love their families and love their houses and love their people and love their employees this way. This is how you love them. You serve them. And... Uh, you're, you don't think yourself above it. So, so this is why you wait up. This is why you want to be awake when the master comes home. Not because he's thoughtless and he's rude and he's just staying out all night. We just got to stay up and, you know, sit around and wait for him to show up. No, you want to be up because he has good things to share with you. He has gone to a great place and he's brought back wonderful things that he's going to spread before you. He wants to bless you and serve you. That's why you stay awake. So disciples of Jesus are the kinds of people who are always on alert, are always ready for the master to share good things with them, who are always ready for the master to act so that they can respond. So because, because they know that ultimately it's they who are going to be served. It's they who are going to be blessed and delivered and protected and fed. This is why servants of the Lord Jesus are so happy to be on call 24 hours a day because I know whatever opportunity I have to serve him is going to come back to me in such incredible ways. I can't even, I can't even give enough to keep up with all the good things that are coming my way. One of my favorite phrases in the whole Psalter and all the Psalms is Psalm 123. And y'all have heard me quote it before. You're about to hear me quote it again or read it again. Uh, Psalm 123 says, unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he has mercy on us. As the eye of the servant looks at the hand of the master, as the eye of a maid watches the fingers of her mistress, so our eyes look to God. Uh, a, a, until he has mercy on us. The, the eyes of a servant are honed in, in full rapt attention upon the hands of their master. They don't want to be uh, staring at the ceiling. They don't want to be chasing butterflies. They don't want to be distracted. They're looking at the hand of their master so that if the master waves them over, they come. 
If the master points over there, they say, oh yeah, there's something over there that needs to be attended to. As the eyes of a mistress, as the eyes of a maid, rather, looks to the eyes of her mistress, so that if she shows that she's thirsty, or uh, you go get something to drink. If all she has to do is, you know, uh, go like this, you know, oh, we need to open a window. It's, it's, it's warm in there. Uh, she, she, the, the mistress uh, and, her, and, her, and her actions are so well known by the maid that all she has to do is make a gesture. And this is the position we're in as servants of the Lord, to know him so intimately that all he has to do is move a finger and we know, oh yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. All he has to do is raise a hand and we say, oh yeah, we know what he's up to. We know his words so well. We're so intimately familiar with his will that we can think his thoughts right after him. We know the way he works. We know how he operates. We know what he expects. And to be able to do this, that means we have to have internalized, we have to have absorbed all of his word, all of the world of symbol and story and parable and prophecy and solves, all of this, we have to absorb it so that our eyes can watch his hand and all he has to do is move his fingers. We know, yep, that's, that's exactly how we're to respond. These are the kinds of disciples that, uh, the kinds of servants that disciples of Jesus are to be. Jesus stays on this topic of diligence and waiting but he shifts focus a little bit for just a second. He, he's commenting on our complete inability to foresee the future. This is why we need to wait on our master. That's why we need to watch him so, because he lets us know what's going on, but we don't know the future. So just as the coming of the master uh, returning to the house, just as that is unpredictable, so is the coming of the thief. Jesus says in verse 39, know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. If you know when a thief is coming, if a thief sends you a text and says, I'm thinking about coming by your house two o'clock next Tuesday afternoon. If you could just do me a favor and not be home, I would really like to help myself to your TV and your jewelry. If you could just let me know where that is. And uh, if you've got any money in your sock drawer, I'll just be in and out in a few minutes. Uh, Tuesday, two o'clock, I'll be there. If you know when the thief is coming, you're gonna be ready for him. You're going to be armed and ready for him. You're going to have friends there armed and ready for him. He's not going to catch you unaware. If you knew when the thief was coming, Jesus says, you'd be ready. But you don't know when the thief is coming. That's why you always have to be ready for either blessing or calamity. And, and whatever the Lord happens to allow or send. Jesus brings this up because... There are many reasons for the servants of the master's household to be vigilant, both for blessing and for calamity and for disaster. So Jesus says in verse 40, therefore you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This son of man coming, he's, he's drawing from this great theme throughout the prophets of the day of the Lord. Uh, the great day when God visits the earth, when he comes to set things in order, when he judges the wicked, when he delivers the righteous. The, the minor prophets especially spoke about this often. And, and when they talked about the day of the Lord, it always had these multiple layers of application. There was always a near fulfillment of the day of the Lord and some greater fulfillment of this great and awesome day of the Lord. 
in their immediate future for the prophets, there was the, uh, the, the attack of the Assyrians on the northern tribes, and they're carrying away into, into oblivion. That was a day of the Lord. There was also the Babylonian captivity. That was a day of the Lord. Both of these great events pointed toward future judgment and deliverance. But nobody knew when they were happening. Nobody, nobody knew how exactly this was going to take place. And so they all had to be ready. That it was happening was sure. When and how it was happening was not as well defined. So they then had to watch and wait. And there were so many who were lazy and unattentive who were caught unaware. Now, in the Gospels, as Jesus heads to Jerusalem, another day of the Lord is imminent. The master is coming home to his house. How is the household of Jerusalem holding up? Are they ready for the master to return? Are they ready for his appearance? Are they ready to go on the exodus that he's going to lead them on? Or when Jesus returns to his house of Jerusalem, are they comfortable and dug in? and lazy. He's coming to serve them, to literally wash their feet. He's going to gird himself, and he wants to wash their feet. This is how he wants to serve them. But are they willing to have him serve them this way? Well, we know how this all turns out, because we've read the end of the story. The master, God incarnate, Jesus, visits his house. He visits his temple, and he finds it corrupt. He finds it wanting. It's, it's full of abuse, and so he pronounces judgment on it. Jesus says, not one stone of this place is going to be left resting upon another. And then God acts in a mighty way through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus and through his ascension. This, this all, this is the day of the Lord. This is the day of God's visitation upon his house, upon his people. This is when he comes to set things in order and judge the wicked and, and, and bless the righteous. But that curse that Jesus gave against the temple, it heralds another day of the Lord within a generation when the temple and the city of Jerusalem are fully destroyed and all ties are finally cut with the old world of the old covenant. That visit is going to look a lot more like a thief in the night. That, that's why Jesus brings this, uh, this, this thief imagery into the story as well. Are they ready for that? Are they even awake? Do they know what is happening? And of course, many were not ready. For us... Each Lord's Day, like today, is a day of the Lord. It's, it's obvious. This is the day of the Lord when, the, when God meets with us. The master has come today to see how's my household running? How, how are things working out? I've left you in charge. How have you done? He comes to inspect and see, is, is everything going right? And so we greet him immediately when he comes and we say, well, there are some things we need to confess. There's some things we haven't done right. There are some things that we need, to, we need to work out and clear up because we need to be restored to fellowship. And then he speaks to us. And then he girds himself and he feeds us. That's what's happening today. This very thing, this, 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 this whole thing is coming uh, to, to bear uh, in worship today. And so the Lord visits his house and he asks, is there anyone here who's keeping the faith, doing what I say? Does anybody have their, their, their robe girded, their, their loins girded with lamps lit? Are they ready to answer the master's call? We, on top of that, still hold out expectation and faith for the great and final coming of the Lord Jesus in the future, in the final judgment, when he resurrects the dead and he brings in the full consummation of the age. 
But this doesn't mean that that's the only and final, and, and uh, by, by that I mean there are, uh, it's not the only day of the Lord that we're looking forward to. This is a day of the Lord. There will be other times when God visits the earth to shake things up and set things right. So Jesus puts this question to his disciples, are you ready? I'm coming to do this at an hour that you do not expect. In all of these different times of waiting and expectation throughout the prophets, throughout the gospels, today included, as we wait for God to set things right, as we wait in expectation for God to revive his people, to reform the culture, to judge the wicked, to call us all to repentance, there has always been uh, uh, both the certainty that the Lord is going to act and the unpredictability of when he is going to act. And in the face of the unpredictability at various times, people have slipped into complacency. In the face of the fact that we don't know when God's going to work this all out, we get lazy. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, you know, is all about this. People hear about some great awesome day of the Lord in Thessalonica, so they quit their jobs. They stop working. They lay around. They think, you know, there's no reason to do anything if there's some great big event on the horizon. But Paul has to remind them in those two letters that the master only blesses servants who are busy, who are faithful. In the face of the uncertainty and the unpredictability, others doubt the certainty of, of the master's return. Like the children of Israel who partied and turned to idolatry when Moses went uh, up to Mount Sinai. They thought, well, he's not coming back. We've seen the last of that guy. Uh, and they derailed into perversity and wickedness. When, when Moses came back, they saw how wrong they were and they were punished severely. So Jesus addresses this point, how the unpredictability of the master's return, how this gets read by wicked servants. In verse 41, Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master will make ruler over his household to give, him, to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. There are four different categories, very quickly, of, of servants who are not ready for uh, or, or are preparing for in various degrees of faithfulness for the master's return. Four, four different categories. The first is the faithful servant. The first is the one who's keeping things running, making sure everybody has what they need. When the master returns, he is made ruler over the whole estate. In great contrast, there's the second servant who says, my master is delaying. He's not coming back. 
And so he begins to beat the male and female servants. That's naturally what you think of, right? You know, mom and dad's not coming home, so I'm going to slug my brothers and sisters. I'm just going to keep pounding on them until I get tired. My arms wear out. This is the attitude of the second servant. He says, he's delaying. I'm going to beat the male and female servants. I'm going to drink until I'm drunk. I'm going to eat everything in the cupboard. And Jesus says, you can guarantee that the master's coming on a day when he doesn't expect it. Why doesn't he? He's not waiting at all for the return of the master. He's not ready to even make things look right. He's not even ready to say, don't cry. Don't say a word. I'll pound you again if you say a word. He's, he's, he's right in the middle of beating somebody when the master comes up. This servant doesn't get promoted. Jesus says he gets cut in two. I don't know, I don't know if that's figurative. I don't know if it's literal. I think both sound pretty rough. Uh, but he's, he's certainly cut off from blessing. The third servant is the one who knows clearly what the master expects. He, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't go around carousing. He doesn't go around beating the other servants. He just doesn't do what's required. He knows what's expected of him. He just doesn't do it. And then the fourth is the servant who's completely ignorant of what's required of him. And he does things that are deserving of a beating, but the master is merciful to him and his punishment is lighter. Because, Jesus sums it up, to whom much is given, much is required. There's so much sensitivity and flexibility there that I think is so helpful, especially when we think about parenting. Uh, about there's, there's not a chart on the refrigerator where the Lord says, you know, if you do this, you get, you know, this many minutes of time out. And if you do this, you got to sit in the corner and do dishes for 12 days. You know, there's not a chart of you do this and you get this punishment. There is a flexibility and a, and, a, and a sensitivity to the need of each individual, even the sinners who are clearly in the wrong, they get different punishments. Why? Because their degree of understanding was different. The degree of their sin and wickedness was different. There's the high-handed sinner, and then there's the negligent sinner, and there's the ignorant sinner, and the master is sensitive to give them all a punishment that they deserve, but, but there's a flexibility there. I think there's a lot of instruction in that. Well, Jesus doesn't explain this parable, but it seems obvious that the, that the immediate application, once again, is that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, when the master returns to his house, is he going to find lit lamps? Is he going to find people with their traveling clothes on and their bags packed, ready to go? Well, some, well, what does he find also? There are many who are abusing others. There are those who are carousing, eating and drinking, thinking that the master is never coming. There are some who are aware of what the master wants and just refuse to do it. There are some who are ignorant of what the master expects and are doing nothing and their punishment is lighter, but everyone gets their just reward and punishment. So how, how are you and I supposed to read this instruction? How do we receive Jesus's words here? Well, we remember and we reflect on all the ways that we're called upon to wait on the Lord and to be faithful while we wait on a big scale. I wanna go global and then I wanna go personal and individual. On a global scale, the world is in chaos, it's in unrest, and it seems like everything is upside down and inside out. And the, in the midst of this, you and I are called to rest confidently that the Lord is knowing, he, he knows what's going on, and he knows what he's doing. In the midst of all this, this confusion and insanity, we know, as Abraham knew, that the judge of all the earth will do right. 
He will establish his kingdom of peace in the midst of tumult and the foment of the nations. When is he going to do this? Boy, I wish he'd do it tomorrow. I wish he'd do it this afternoon. When is this going to happen? When is, when is the Lord going to set everything right in the world? I don't know. We don't know. I am certain that he will. He has revealed this to us. The when is unpredictable. So how are we supposed to wait? On a much smaller scale, many of us are facing much more personal, individual times of testing and temptations. We're all fighting our own uphill battles. We're all waiting on a smaller scale for the Lord to bring deliverance and blessing. We're waiting for our master to return and set everything right. How long do we have to wait? How long is this going to go on? How long, and I know you've asked this before, how long do I have to put up with this? What does God expect? How long do I have to stand this? I don't know. I can't answer that. That God will set everything right is certain. When? I don't have an answer for you. I don't know. The Lord hasn't revealed that to me. But both on the scale of the global expectation that we have for for God setting everything right, and, and on the personal level, our personal expectations for deliverance and for judgment and for blessing, our personal waiting for the master to come home, what's required of the servant, both in the global sense and in the personal sense, what's required of the servant is always the same. What are we to do? Be ready for him to come home. Be ready for him to act and move and judge, and deliver, and bless. Be ready to get up and go into the deliverance that he is working out for you. Be ready to go take the blessing that he has, has set there before you. Don't be found asleep when he moves and when he acts. Don't let him find you abusing others like the wicked servants. Don't let him find you drunk and lazy. Don't be among those who need to be judged when he comes. Let him find you busy, not idle. This is the very thing that all men and women of faith have had to learn, and all men and women of faith have been called to do throughout, throughout history. When you read the stories of the Bible, waiting on the Lord, waiting on him to fulfill his promises is something that he has always required of all his servants. God loves for his people to wait faithfully, like Moses. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, 40 years in the wilderness. It's a lot of waiting. Hannah praying faithfully for a son. Abraham and Sarah waiting for a son, dwelling in tents, waiting for a city, as Hebrews 11 says. Joseph waiting in prison. Ruth waiting for her kinsman redeemer. David waiting for God to deal with Saul so that he could use his gifts for Israel as he was anointed to do and take his place as king. Why? Why does God put his people through this over and over and over? Why does God make his people wait? I don't have all the answers. I think one answer is that he intends to cultivate the kind of faith that only comes through waiting. He intends to teach you the lessons that you can only learn through patience and waiting and constant vigilance for his coming. He's looking to cultivate the kind of faith that finds contentment, not knowing all the answers. 
He's cultivating the kind of disciple who finds contentment within the bounds of God's sovereign will and say, you know what? I don't know what you're doing here, Lord. Boy, if you, if you got an answer for me, I'd love to hear it. I don't understand what you're doing. But this right now, what you have for me is good for me. It is the best for me. And I praise you for it. This situation of waiting, this time of, 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 of feeling like I'm caught between two things. This is good for me. The wait is good. What would be the contrast to this? If, 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 if our God were the kind of God who always delivered, though, though he showers us with his blessings daily, if he always delivered instant gratification for every single thing, what kind of faith would that produce? Have you ever seen a child who has never heard the word no? Is that person fun to be around? Does, does anybody like that guy? Nobody likes that guy. This is why, children, we tell you no. It's because we're trying to make you into people who people want to be around. We're trying to teach you how to be humans. And our Lord tells us no to cultivate the kind of faith that is patient and waits upon the Lord. Now, it's important to say waiting is not idleness. Waiting is not to be equated with boredom. I, I always associate waiting with, you know, lines. I think of lines at the post office or lines at the DMV or sitting in a doctor's office. You know, you made your appointment for 2 o'clock and you're sitting there for 2.30 and then you get called in this other little room and you sit there for another 20 minutes and, and, and you're just bored. It's just this soul-sucking boredom. And that's what I think of when I think of waiting. That's not the kind of waiting that God asks of his people. When you're asked to wait on God's promises to be fulfilled, God is not saying, what I want you to do is go sit on your hands. That's not what he's saying. Keeping our loins girded and our lamps burning is what he wants for us. You, you wait like Noah, who waited on the rain by building an ark. Noah waited by building an ark. Even while there were, there were those around him who were laughing at him and they were drinking and they were carrying on and marrying and giving in marriage, as Jesus says, living as if nothing's changing, living as if, if nothing's going to happen. But when the floods come, those who've been working on the ark are delivered. The rest are swept away in the flood. So keeping our loins girded and our lamps lit for us, for you and me, means that no matter what we're doing, no matter where we're going, we're on the master's business. We're serving the, the cause of his house. We're doing the work that the master gave us. Gave us. We, are, we are the servants of his household. He has left us in charge and he expects us to have everything in order when he comes. There's a great story from the 1790s when a solar eclipse that no one was predicting this eclipse, but there was this total solar eclipse that fell across New England and the Connecticut House of Representatives was in session at the time. Of course, this is before electricity. They didn't have lights. And so when the sun was darkened by the moon, the chamber of the House of Representatives fell into complete darkness. One state congressman wrote in his diary later, the skies at noon turned to gray, then to a deep black. With threatening sounds from the sky, it was as dark as midnight. And so some of the representatives fell to their knees. Others panicked and they called for the meeting to be adjourned. They thought that the day of judgment had come. They thought, okay, this is it. We've, we've done everything. This is it. Lord, come take us. We're, we're done. But the speaker of the house was a, a colonel uh, in, the, in the war for independence. His name was Abraham Davenport. And, and he wrote, and he said at the time, and, and this was written down later, 
This is what he said, the speaker of the house. This well may be the day of judgment, which the world awaits. But be it so or not, I only know my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy till he come. So at the post where he hath sent me in his providence, I choose for one to meet him face to face. No faithless servant frightened from my task, but ready when the Lord of the harvest calls. And therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let God do his work. We will see to ours, bring in the candles. <laughs> He's saying, you know, if it's the day of judgment, be that as it may, bring in the candles, let's get back to work. Because if the Lord is coming, I want him to see me working. I don't want him to see me shaking. I don't want him to see me idle. I want him to see me working. That's a pretty good demonstration of the kind of readiness that Jesus is requiring. Martin Luther was asked one time, what would you do if you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow? And he said, I'd plant an apple tree. That's what I'd do. Uh, I'll let you think on that for a while. Why, why would he do that? That's because what do you do today? You do things that'll last forever. You do things that'll, that'll, that'll remain, that, that many generations will benefit from. It's about being faithful to do what God has called you to do every single day without stopping, without flagging, without failing at your post. Do your job. As a servant of the house, do your job. Do what you are called to do. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't let your heart fail. Be encouraged to do your work. Do the task your master has given you. Even if you feel like it's way past the time that the master should have come back and delivered you from this tedious thing, if you think, man, he should have fixed things a long time ago, even if you think you'd rather be doing something else, do the work he has called you to do as a servant in his household. This doesn't sound adventurous. Boy, it doesn't even sound romantic. It sounds kind of plain. It sounds kind of ordinary. But the world really needs a healthy dose of ordinary, faithful, steady Christian uh, uh, perseverance. The church also needs a steady, regular diet of day in, day out, shoulder to the plow, honest to goodness, hard work. What we have in, in, in opposition to that is a lot of distraction. What we have is a lot of people who would look down their nose at and ridicule the guy who does the tedious day-to-day -day work, like, like they did Noah. You know, a guy, what's he doing? He's just cutting down trees. He's making some kind of boat all day long. What's that going to do? The guy who would keep the flame going, waiting on his master return, like the servant in the story. That's not, that's not radical enough. That's not cool. That doesn't look like an adventure. There's this whole other topic we'll save for another day of how our aversion to patience produces a culture of instant gratification, which trains our expectations and makes us worse at waiting, not, not better. It actually works in the opposite direction of the kind of disciples that Jesus wants. We despise the ordinary and the faithful and the, the daily grind that, that faithfulness often looks like. But the kind of obedience that Jesus is calling for us here is, is the kind that tenaciously, obediently perseveres in spite of whatever else is going on. Why is the master delaying? Why, why, is, he, why is he not back? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Keep working. It's the kind of faith you can only have when you've come to the end of yourself and you've said, I don't have all the answers. I can't predict the future. 
I acknowledge there are things I can't control, but I want to be faithful with what he has revealed to me. And I want to be consistent with what I have been given. That's the kind of faith that waiting produces. And as James says in his epistle, let patience have her perfect work. That's the kind of faith Jesus is calling his apostles to. That's the kind of faith he still calls us to. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to indeed work this kind of faith in us. You make us wait for a reason. And we give you thanks for that. We ask you to, to uh, fill us with your spirit in such a way that we don't waste these opportunities to wait and be patient that you have given us. Father, uh, may we be servants like the ones in the story who are, are patiently, diligently waiting on their master, not distracted, lazy, or abusive, or drunken servants who, who just don't care. Father, uh, fill us again uh, with this understanding, and may we be faithful to it and live by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.